0: Fit toys.
1: Welcome to episode 627 with my guest, Dr. Alex Wills. I am Paul Gilmartin, and you are listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit. Every last inch of the bullshit pinballing around <laughs> our dysfunctional, struggling skulls. Is that a little too dramatic? I think it is. Uh, i am not a therapist i think that's probably already obvious by the f- first five seconds of this uh i'd like to think of this podcast not as the uh solution for people's problems but uh you know i'm the cheerleader for the the professionals out there i like that i can't pr- pronounce the word professionals uh i'm a cheerleader for support groups and therapy and All all other kinds of good stuff. I don't know why I'm rehashing all this. I'm second-guessing myself. What do we got, a minute, seven seconds? Ship's going down already? I want you to think of episode 627 as the Titanic of podcast episodes. (laughs) I watched a documentary on Netflix... Called uh, I don't I don't remember the full name of it, but the the beginning of the name of it is Keep Sweet, and it might be Keep Sweet, Pray Obey, or Keep Sweet Obey. But it's about Warren Jeffs and the fundamentalist uh, Latter Day Saints uh, cult, I guess you would call it. Uh, holy fuck! Is that dark? And it it is you know the other thing that is fascinating to me about it uh, aside from the psychopathy of him and the um, brainwashing and the frustration as a as a citizen watching these people especially these children being manipulated and abused the other part that is so fascinating to me is how bad their entertainment is when they sing Oh my God! It is if nobody on the planet, other than white people, had ever existed. That's that. It's almost like a scientific experiment of what would have happened if the world had been white. What would completely white? What would music have looked like? Fascinating. Finally, got. I don't remember if I mentioned this on last week's uh, episode. I think I might have, but. my shoulder surgery finally got approved, and so I'm going to have that taken uh, care of on, on Wednesday. Really looking forward uh, to that. Uh, don't know why I mentioned that. I guess in case uh, there's complications, and <laughs> this, is my, this is my farewell episode. Oh, let's not go down with the Titanic episode. That's not good. Um, I mentioned last week we could use some help with uh, Patreon donations. And uh, I have started to share some of the satire that I write on almost a daily basis. I've decided to uh, start sharing that with Patreon donors, and uh, they seem to be enjoying that. So, uh, I don't know if that if that's the uh, thing that puts you over the edge about going and becoming a Patreon donor. That would be awesome. And the other thing, uh, if you care to support the show... Other than through Patreon and PayPal, is uh, you can make a just a direct Venmo donation, and the uh, Venmo handle is MentalPod, which is the same name as the website and social media handles. So Venmo at MentalPod donations would be greatly appreciated. All right, let's enough of my groveling. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Daughter of Wolves, and about. Her um, depression, specifically, uh, her MDD, uh, she writes, I feel raw, like I'm a burned victim, like some protective layer that's supposed to be there has disappeared, and even a feather touching me is going to make me scream and burst into tears. It feels like I'm seven years old again, crying until I throw up at school, and my grandmother comes to get me so I can go home where I feel safe and cozy. Man, does that sound intense. Fuck. Uh, she also, uh, battles PTSD. Uh, she is a sex crime survivor. She has anger issues and a snapshot from her life. She writes, laying in bed at 15 years old, fantasizing about starving to death in the hospital, my loved ones around finally noticing me and realizing how much I hurt all this time. Thank you for that. That is so deep. And, uh, That is something that has been shared quite a few times by people, uh, is that fantasy of having their pain seen and validated um, by being in the hospital for, for some reason, that fantasy of that. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Rundle and they write, every morning I get up to let the dog out and feed her breakfast. I know the cat is waiting in the spare bedroom, and as soon as I return to bed while the dog is still eating, I hear the little footsteps of Kitty. She sneaks into the room, jumps up on the bed, and then lays right on top of me with her face about an inch away from mine. I pet her, she purrs, and then falls asleep. Doesn't matter if the alarm goes off. If kitty is there, I don't move and soak up every minute of her cuteness and affection that I can. I love that. Which reminds me, there's a YouTube video that I saw that might be the most heartwarming thing that I've ever seen and made me feel terrible for being a meat eater. But it's about uh, owners being reunited with. former animals that, that, that they raised or took care of. Oh, my God. I don't remember who the person is that put it up there, but it it is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen on YouTube, other than tractor accidents. This is uh, from the Misophonia survey, not very uh, commonly read on the podcast. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Sad Cat, and she's in her 20s. What noises trigger you? Chewing, taking the pen cap on and off, any repetitive sounds. Yesterday a girl was putting down cards on a table loudly for five minutes and it bothered the shit out of me. When people rub their feet together and their socks make sounds. Excessive finger cracking. Snoring is a huge one for me. Squeaky things that aren't supposed to be squeaky, like wheels on grocery carts. Scratching sound on really dry skin. Is your relationship with the person making the noise affected by their noises? It used to be just my dad that I would get triggered with, but now it's everyone. Are you comfortable telling people about your sound sensitivity slash misophonia? Sometimes. It usually pops up when I'm in PHP, which stands for partial hospitalization uh, groups, for therapy because there's a lot of anxious people there and they shake their foot when And if I feel comfortable with the group, I tell them kindly. And then I always feel like I'm being high maintenance. What have the reactions been when you've told people? They don't know what it is. They say, okay, tell me if I'm ever doing anything. And then they usually forget right away. Do you have any other sensory sensitivities? Smell, touch, taste, sights? Yes, exclamation point, sights. Repetitive movements bug the crap out of me shaking legs, rubbing feet together, even just the circling your ankle around multiple times, picking fingers and skin. Have you ever struggled with food issues? Yes, I've struggled since I was 12, I'm 21. It goes back and forth between restricting and then binging with a few purges. How long have you had misophonia? Since I can remember, I think it started to get really bad uh, at eight. How many times a day do you get triggered? Depends on the environment. If I'm home, isolating, zero. If I'm home and I'm hanging with my parents, probably three to four. And if I'm in treatment, probably seven plus. Do you feel guilty about your triggers or the way you respond to them? Yes. I feel like people deal with anxiety in different ways. And when I tell them about misophonia, I feel like I'm saying, stop feeling anxious. Have you been diagnosed with a mental or physical health disorder slash issue? And if so, do you believe it's connected to your misophonia? Depression, anxiety, PTSD, eating disorder, unspecified? I don't think it's connected. Well, I guess it makes my anxiety start slash go up when someone is making a noise or doing something that triggers me. Do you have a history of trauma? Uh, I was sexually assaulted by an ex-boyfriend at 15 on Halloween. My parents were workaholics and didn't give me a lot of attention when I needed it. Also, they invalidated me and would try to stop making me feel sad. Did you experience trauma to the ear, for instance, a loud sound prior to the onset of your misophonia? No. Have you tried any kind of therapy, medication, or tools for your misophonia and did it help? No. I've told a few psychiatrists, but no one seems to know about it and doesn't really seem to care either. Oh, I'm so sorry about uh, about that. Um, I hope I hope you don't give up on. Tr- I I I don't know much about misophonia. This, in fact, this survey um, was suggested and created by a listener who uh, struggles with misophonia. Um, so I just learn about it from what I read in these surveys. So I I don't know much about the success rates of therapy for it, but I'm a big believer in trying everything and seeing seeing what sticks against the walls. Uh, This is an email uh, that I got uh, from Angela Griffith, and she writes, I am Mrs. Angela Griffith from Houston, Texas, USA. How are you? I'm I'm good, and it is nice to meet you, Mrs. Angela Griffith from Houston, Texas, USA. I would love to do- donate some money to you to do my last wish on Earth, which is a charity work to assist me to give to the poor masses and less privileged people in your country. Uh, I'm a little suspect because she's, she says poor masses, but she doesn't say huddled. Anyway, I'm going to read out. I am ill with stage four lungs cancer. Oh, my God, I got both of them, which is a terminal disease. Please reply so that I will give you further further details and tell you more about myself. God bless you. Well, God bless you right back. And, you know, normally I just ball these up and throw them away. But as you said, uh, it is your last wish on earth. And that that really got to me. Although I'm not really sure when people say Earth, I'm not really sure what what they mean by Earth. Uh, Hey Siri, what is Earth?
2: Earth is the third planet from the sun, and the only astronomical object known to contain dog hotels. Part of the inner solar system, it orbits the sun at a distance of 93 million miles, measured from Earth's epicenter America. The speed of Earth's orbit is 66,600 miles per hour with a complete trip around the sun occurring every 365.356 days, also known as a year, and celebrated on Jan 1st by trying to keep food down and rooting against Alabama, Earth's human population is estimated to be 7 billion, with roughly 25% living in poverty, and the rest in areas that contain the word hills. Between college and starting a family. This majority will often intentionally live in areas of poverty for higher ceilings, better parties, and the see through elevators detectives ride just before shooting drug dealers. The surface area of Earth is 510 million SQ kilometers, with 70% being interconnected, ocean, and the rest unaffordable. The 148.94 million SQ kilometers of land is currently divided into 195 countries, but fluctuates due to the natural resources of larger countries, often residing in smaller ones. Earth is also divided theologically into different religions often resulting in conflict, persecution and unnecessarily long weddings. Most religions center around their all powerful deity whose compassion and love is sought through daily prayer, with the knowledge however that it will not be granted if another religion still exists. Orbiting around Earth is a tourist destination called the Moon which opened in 1969 welcoming two visitors, and by the late 70s exploding to over five, its popularity slowly declined in the early 80s, But in recent years, the moon and other planets in Earth's solar system are seeing renewed interest from billionaires wanting to experience the sensation of zero poor people.
1: Wow. That was illuminating. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Rumination. And about his ADD, he he writes, starting to load the dishwasher at 9 p.m., but finishing at 1 a.m. after rearranging the kitchen cabinets And waking at six for work to find I didn't start the dishwasher. (laughs) It's so fucking fantastic. About his anxiety. If only you'd stick to the script I wrote on the drive over, our interaction would go so much smoother. Uh, About his compulsive eating. It doesn't count if you stuff it in your mouth before the refrigerator door closes. Oh my God, those are fantastic. Thank you for those. Uh, This is from Struggle in a Sentence Filled Up by a Woman Who Calls Herself Sad at the Beach. Is there any other way to be at the beach? Uh, About her uh, bipolar depression, I must make time to catch up on sadness after all that fun and excitement. Oh, that is so good. About her love addiction, all I want is a boyfriend to hold me at night, but I don't want to have to figure out men. So good. So good butter codependency you make me feel sad and then you comfort me to make me feel better god i've read so many relationships since i've been doing the podcast and going to support groups where people describe that where the abuser is the source of pain and then the source of comfort and what a mindfuck uh That is because it's like where is the line between somebody owning their mistakes and somebody just being toxic and uh, I don't know. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by, uh, oh, Daughter of Wolves again. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I'm a freak and if my loved ones could experience my unadulterated thought stream for a day, they would be horrified at what kind of a person I really am. That I'm not cut out for the working world and I'll never be able to hold down a job that doesn't make me miserable. That I deserve to suffer and I should give up therapy and medication. That I traumatized myself by allowing an older guy to do sexual things to me as a teenager that I didn't like. That my friends hate me and are always looking for an out or a reason to friend dump me. And that I drag my husband's quality of life down and someday he'll realize it and leave me. Thank you for sharing those, and I think a lot of those, uh, boy, so many of us can can relate to. You are not alone in those uh, in those thoughts. Uh, this is also from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by uh, or our friend, again, Rumi Nation. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I tell myself that I will always flub the big moment. Examples of these embarrassing mistakes from different epochs. Am I pronouncing that right? God, I feel so stupid. Show up randomly like shocks to the brain, often making audible grunts and cursing if I'm in private or my impulse control is lacking. If I messed up, then I will mess up again. Try to fight that logic and I will parry parry with you until surrender and agree that I will always fuck up at the big moment. You just don't know me well enough to accept it as freely as I do. Any comments to make the podcast better. Not a huge fan of the fake emails, uh, but I love your Lettermanian stubbornness with ongoing bits. If you're laughing, I'm laughing, but I tend to fast forward through them. I understand the comedic impulse to cut the tension, but sometimes it almost feels disrespectful, parentheses, sorry, exclamation point, to the adjacent surveys. Love this podcast and your dedication to sharing an unbiased platform. For the neurodivergent. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. It's hard to read sometimes uh, when people don't care for some of the stuff I do, but um, I think it's I think it's healthy to take in um, criticism that is diplomatically uh, shared. And sometimes I will feel like, yeah, they got a point, and other times I'd be like, well, I'm not uh, I'm their cup of tea. I'm not. I'm not changing that part because I believe in it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp online therapy, and uh, you know this this month and next month the theme at BetterHelp is being the best you uh, that you can be. And I like to think of that as being our most authentic self. And um, for me, it it. it So much of it involves understanding what I'm afraid of and what my bad habits and tools are to to reach for when I'm afraid. And so much of the quality of my life improving has to do with me just getting better tools and listening to my intuition better and and trusting it. So if you're thinking of giving better help a try, uh, let me rephrase that. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. If you want to does it matter with me? If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com. .com slash mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, .com slash mental. And if you would, include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. This episode is sponsored by Fisher-Wallace Labs. The brain is an amazing electrical system. Why not treat it as such? Wearable brain stimulation technology from Fisher-Wallace Labs is cleared by the FDA to treat depression anxiety and insomnia last year they conducted a massive study on the effects of their device for people suffering from depression which yielded statistically significant separation between active and placebo groups as well as a high and rapid response rate and no significant adverse events reported by participants in short the treatment works and it works quickly without risk of dependency or side effects Treatment with Fisher-Wallace is easy. Simply use the device at home twice a day, 20 minutes each session. Most experience relief within two weeks without the potential side effects of prescription medication. It is the choice alternative therapy of thousands of doctors and hundreds of thousands of patients nationwide. Use the Fisher-Wallace device for up to 30 days and return it for a full refund if it's not a game changer. Go to FisherWallace.com and use the promo code HAPPY to save 10% on your purchase. That's FisherWallace.com promo code HAPPY. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Brianna. And uh, about her depression, she writes, I'm too tired and disorganized to kill myself. About her Uh, anxiety. Sometimes I'm anxious because I can't figure out if I'm actually anxious or just hungry. And then a snapshot from her life, having to explain to my mother that I'm in the psych ward for the third time and her saying, is that why you gained so much weight this year?
2: My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy-weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction.
1: <laughs> and Moral Injury. I
2: would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or, with my Barbies. <laughs>
1: The greatest source of our suffering... Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. ...is our unwillingness to experience
2: and accept our emotions. It is very hard to heal in dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this.
1: (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Alex Wills, who is a psychiatrist who also does talk therapy... And uh, did you coin the term um, radical emotional acceptance?
0: Yeah, it's a original coming from some inspiration from radical acceptance, but really applied to emotions.
1: And, and it's such a, an interesting concept to me because it seems like a bit of an ox- oxymoron because we equate radical with fighting and acceptance with giving up. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so... Explain to me and the listener what exactly is – and and I've uh, spot read your book. Is it – it's not out yet, is it?
0: It's being released in um, mid-January. Okay. So it will be out by by the time this comes out. Yes. uh,
1: Your book is called Give a Fuck Actually, and uh, it's really – interesting and, and informative, and I had therapy with my uh, therapist this morning, and I began incorporating some of the ideas that uh, you, you lay out in there. I found them to be really, really helpful. Um, so radical emotional acceptance, um, it's, it's based on RA, and, and how is it different as you incorporate emotions
0: into it? Well, I noticed, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there with um, radical acceptance of our situations. But in most of the pop psychology stuff, I found that they were really trying to find a way to still fix or avoid or work through difficult emotions instead of realizing that the emotions themselves might not be a problem at all. So it's a pretty unique concept in that way. So would that be to say that it didn't
1: involve the, the digging or, as you call it, the examining the big
0: part of the iceberg below the water? That's an essential part of the steps is to get down there and simply name the, the deep, vulnerable, painful emotions that we're going through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And you have five different areas
1: of working the radical emotional acceptance and, and, uh, just, uh, share with our listeners with the names of those far five are.
0: Yeah. So the five steps, um, go through, um, the first one, um, it basically, um, talks about how to have a better relationship with your emotions. So speaking of the iceberg that you mentioned, mm-hmm. the first step is to, um, drop the fuck shield mm-hmm. or, Recognize that you have a fuck shield, such Mm -hmm. as anger or another shield emotion that is protecting you from those deeper, vulnerable emotions, Mm -hmm. kind of like going deep into the iceberg. Uh, The second step is to uh, name the emotions. You might list out fear, sadness, disappointment, disgust, hate. Um, The next step is to listen to the emotions. Mm -hmm. See if you can uh, learn what they're trying to teach you and what kind of desires you might have from those. Uh, The next step, number four, is to act on the emotion or not act. Sometimes, once you get to that point, you realize you don't need to do anything at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you realize you might need to do a lot. Mm -hmm. And then the final step is my favorite, uh, thank the fuck, or thank the emotion. Realize that these painful, difficult emotions are actually there for a purpose and if we can only discover how they're trying to help us there's no longer a problem
1: and that that was a revelation to me because i'd always just assumed um you know i'm i'm pretty well versed in the getting to the emotion that's underneath it um saying is is there a lesson here but never really thanking the fuck it's more the mindset of why do I keep doing this? Why can't I be better at this? When is this going to end? Does that make sense?
0: Yes. And I had a personal revelation, you know, in a psychiatry residency training, they're always teaching us to do gratitude journaling. You know, I'm thankful for the oxygen in my lungs and I'm thankful for the sun. I'm thankful for the sky. It's like, well, no shit. (laughs) I'm thankful for that. No big (laughs) stretch. One day I realized that if you could actually find true gratitude for your problems or specifically for your painful, difficult emotions that was kind of the pathway to Zen, in, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak. Uh, yeah, and it seems like it's much easier to do
1: when we get an outcome down the road that we can trace back to, oh, if this problem hadn't happened, I wouldn't have gotten this thing that I love. Mm-hmm. But it seems so much more challenging when we don't have some present down the road from a problem or a setback right i suppose that's where faith comes in and whether it's a higher power or um the some benevolent force in the universe uh, or or just patience i mean what's what's kind of your take on that
0: yeah um, a good example comes to mind which is the very painful emotion of loneliness and we often do everything we can to avoid or fix or not feel that because it can be very, you know, deeply haunting. So the flip side of loneliness is a desire, the desire for connection, the desire for intimacy, companionship, whatever it is that you want. So although it might not take or it might take uh, weeks or months to get to the level where you actually get that desire met, the hope is instantaneous. So if we tune into the painful emotions, The desires, then we automatically have hope right away. And that can give us energy and motivation to start moving towards that.
1: I would imagine there's a lot of people who struggle with that, though, whose track record with reaching out or, um, yeah, just putting themselves out there and have met a lot of rejection for one reason or another. Um, How, when you're counseling a patient and you know, you kind of lay that concept on them of you know let's let's get hope sparking, uh, and they're like, I- I've been hoping for five fucking years, and I can't find a partner or a group of friends. Or how do, how do you, how do you deal with that as a counselor slash
0: psychiatrist? Sure. Um, In the book, since I can't do what I normally do with patients, which is some kind of coaching to really make these concepts real in their lives. One level is to understand them intellectually, of course, but where the rubber meets the road is if it actually creates that change in their lives. And you're right. One of the symptoms of a deep depression is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you think, no matter what you're experiencing, there's that sense of just complete lack of all hope, um, just despair Mm -hmm. and, and it's painful and it, it can be very awful. So because I can't coach um, each and every patient that reads the book, I use a lot of fictionalized characters to do the best I can to try to make it real and so that people can maybe find themselves within some of the characters and try to make it real for themselves through that process of fiction.
1: And I found that part of the book to be really compelling. And I want to ask you some questions to to talk about those characters and uh, and situations um, Going back to the 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 thing about uh, coaching people and the the spark there, the other thing I w- want to add is um, there seems to be a downward negative cycle that we can get trapped in when we don't have hope because we give off this energy that's kind of hard to be around.
0: Exactly, right. It's very true. It's um, you know. I, I love what I do because you get to be with people kind of um, at their darkest times, yeah. um, but you also get to see the change that sometimes, you know, happens quickly. Sometimes, you know, it can take a while.
1: Yeah, that that yeah. to me is one of the greatest experiences of being alive is seeing the light come on in someone else's eyes. And sometimes it's so much easier than realizing the light has come on in our eyes. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. And I've seen it happen over a weekend with people who've done intensive work on their shame or, their, you know, just some type of baggage. And I see them at the next support group meeting and they're making eye contact and they're smiling. And I'm like, wow, somebody somebody did some work over the weekend. That's awesome. Welcome to the human
0: race. Right. I had a really great experience um, maybe a couple months ago. A gentleman came to see me, and he was just devastated. He went from a very high-paying career. He lost everything, and he just was right back to rock bottom. He was miserable. He couldn't stop ruminating. Um, He was having suicidal thoughts. He was just very down. He'd been that way for months before he finally came to see me. And we went through the steps of radical emotional acceptance, And part of it was him realizing like, wait a minute, it's okay to feel shitty. It's okay to feel disappointed. It's okay to feel this, you know, horrible sense of loss. I'm like, yeah, that's, these are appropriate emotions for what just happened to you. And, and through just, um, being able to name his painful, scary emotions, that in itself um, gave him a sense of, like, you know, huge relief. And that was a stepping stone towards his, like, pathway back. And, I mean, he he kind of came around really quickly compared to a lot of the people yeah. I see.
1: Which reminds me of a, a quote uh, that you have in there from Michael Brown. What's the name of the book uh, that, that he has?
0: Uh. Um, I've, off the top of my head, I can't remember
1: no worries, no worries. But the quote is Learning to work with our emotions is not about feeling better, but about getting better at feeling. And I was like, wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah that that used to be uh I, I used that quote in my um email signature line for for a couple of years because that really hit hard and I was like yeah the the goal isn't just to feel good all the time what yes. if the goal is to be okay with uh the whole spectrum of emotions that come up and down
1: yeah what a what a mind-blowing concept that uh it's it's not about eliminating things rather than I don't know what would the verb be
0: observing
1: things, feeling things.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh we call we call the five steps the five acceptances so just, you know, sort of accepting reality and accepting like yeah, th- this is my current emotional landscape and these are the 12 different emotions at different okay. intensities going on right now. Uh there's a thing in Buddhism that you
1: talk about called the second arrow. Uh talk about that if you would.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful idea how, you know, when the first arrow strikes, like an actual um, something bad happens to you, that hurts bad enough. But the second arrow is when you kind of carry that pain with you the whole time. Uh, there's a really cool story that I remember um, from Buddhism, and uh, the Buddhist monks were not allowed to talk or touch or really interact with uh, females in this you know, monastery. So two, two monks are walking along. Um, a woman needed to cross a muddy path. And so one of the monks actually picked her up and carried her across and put her down. And then the other monk was observing this. A few hours later, they were walking and the the other monk said, why did you do that? This is against the rules. You're not supposed to do that. And the first monk said, well, I put that woman down a few hours ago. It seems like you're still carrying her. (laughs)
1: What a uh, great, uh, what would you call that, a fable? I always forget (laughs) a moral, a fable. (laughs) Um, Talk about emotions
0: versus feelings.
1: I'd always assumed they were the the same, but you uh, kind of delineate them.
0: Yeah, I find it like essential um, in psychotherapy to understand the difference. Um, I don't care what the dictionary definitions are, but if we conceptually can understand that a raw emotion is that sensation you get in your body. If it's shame, it's that hot, fiery, you know, painful, throbbing sensation. If it's fear, you can feel it. You don't need to explain what an emotion is. Sadness, joy, um, hate, Um, you can just sort of feel it in your bones, and you don't need to tell people why necessarily for them to understand what your emotion is. If you take an emotion and add a story to it, then you have a feeling. And the stories are often toxic and wrong and not helpful. So we always want to question the stories Mm -hmm. and get rid of the negative and the untruths the toxic stories. And we want to validate whatever the emotion is because the emotion is just uh, pure sensation, almost like uh, colors.
1: Uh, I heard somebody say in a meeting one time, "I can't control whether or not a bird lands on my head, but I can control whether or not I let it build a nest." Right. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, that that is uh, uh, the the second arrow is. That seems like where ninety percent of the work is. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about before we get into some of the stories and the. Characters, um, talk about your approach to meds versus talk therapy, et, et, et cetera.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I was trained in Hawaii um, at the you know regular psychiatry residency program, and I did some child fellowship as well. And we're trained to kind of do the full spectrum of medication management, medical assessment, and psychotherapy. Um, I swallowed a psychotherapy pill when I was in my training and I just became, you know, addicted to different psychotherapies. And I wanted to, you know, collect them all, study them all, and to see what pearls of wisdom I could get from each one. And they informed uh, your five steps. Right. Yeah, Yeah, Everything's based on evidence-based therapy. So I'm just really relying on kind of the scientific approach. And I'm only putting out there stuff that's kind of been tested through all of these different studies before.
1: So give me an example of where um, you would bring meds into the into the equation early on
0: and where you would, um, hold off
1: and maybe an example where you're kind of torn.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, every case is so different. Uh, the first example that pops into my mind is, you know, if you have someone come in with a very clear case of uh, ADHD, and for the life of them, you know, from their history and the full assessment, they're just not able to focus. And then that's causing a lot of issues with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think of ADHD, for example, as more of a neurological condition. It's more of like a hard wiring condition. Mm-hmm. So all the talk therapy you do, it's not going to really change it. Sure, they can change their lives and become a park ranger or something and adapt to the ADHD. But if they want to, you know, function in modern society, um, they would likely benefit in a lot of cases from, you know, that type of medication. And so we'll kind of work with that piece. But then we'll also look at, you know, do they have any other deep emotional struggles going on so we can kind of pivot into the psychotherapy part of it.
1: Uh, and you talked about in your book of sometimes of the the mistake of medicating too early, and uh, what
0: are some of the repercussions of that? Yeah, you know, um medications can be effective. So if somebody is skilled in the art of emotional suppression and not giving a fuck, um, add a little bit of zoloft and man we can kick the bucket down the road for another few years, perhaps. Mm-hmm. No, I don't want to um, suggest that some people wouldn't you know, benefit from Zoloft. However, sometimes the medications can prevent somebody from getting the deeper emotional healing that they need, in which case they wouldn't need medications afterwards. Right. And is it possible for somebody to be getting on meds to get out of the trough um,
1: but is also successful in processing things and feeling things?
0: Yeah. And, uh, that's another reason why I love the field is because you have a giant toolbox, you got, you know, medications, you got psychedelic medications, you got, um, psychotherapy. Um, Mm -hmm. you, you have the, we have what we call the bio, bio biopsychosocial, uh, formulation where we take into account the person's biology, genetics, um, their psychology and their social situation. Sometimes the prescription is for, a a home because they don't have a home to live in right now so we want to kind of assess and you know treat the whole picture
1: yeah um and do you talk with diet about your uh client struggles
0: yeah absolutely yeah diet can be a big factor for people too and i i'll admit i was a little bit more of a stickler uh when i started off and i was um you know, trying to require that all of my patients, um, you know, had a really great diet and exercise habits because, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the proof is there that it makes a big difference. But, um, I kind of got worn down over time and it's, it's one of the hardest things to do, but we do our best to address it. Yeah. Um, speaking of
1: meds, uh, talk about the Adderall lady and, and, and just to, to preface this, um, Alex's the characters in the book are amalgamated to protect the privacy of your individual patients. They're amalgamations of actual uh, experiences with right. with clients.
0: Right. Yeah. We we don't uh, violate anybody's medical privacy at all. So every every character is completely fictionalized. Mm-hmm. Um, the one you speak of, uh, we call Addie in the in the book, mm-hmm. and she is um, someone who's you know only really there to kind of use me to, to get the Adderall. And uh, I actually wrote this section after I had an experience uh, with a patient that reminded me of a lot of other patients mm-hmm. and uh, just, you know, very dismissive. Um,
1: or talk, talk about what she said. And mm-hmm. when she, when she came through the door for that one appointment, I found myself like getting angry listening to her maybe because I've come across so many people like that in my life that I immediately write off as entitled
0: yeah very entitled I think uh, the line that she used was uh you're holding my meds hostage. Yeah. And she was accusing all of the staff and me of you know, uh, holding her meds hostage and not giving her what she needs. Being incompetent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So pointing the finger at everybody except herself and uh, just wanting to you know, rely on the narcotic to kind of to help her out. So. And so how did you work your way through that? Not only uh, for her, but for yourself. You know, it's interesting because as I was writing this, I was also practicing it myself. Um, So it was like this weird lesson of like epiphanies from my own experiences in therapy and putting this together into the book and trying to practice what I preach. So instead of I noticed my normal go to would have been to just say, I, I don't give a fuck about her. She's just entitled st- whatever, you know? Um, but I'm like, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm going to, I'm going to practice radical emotional acceptance myself and let's see what happens. And so I'm like, all right, what are my painful emotions? I'm like, I feel disappointed. I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel disgusted. I feel, um, disappointed, you know, and maybe a bit weary, you know, did, did,
1: any of your critical self-talk issues come up did any part of you feel like well maybe a little part of her is right or was it just objectively you could see no this person is is just
0: yeah, I think, um, there was definitely the emotion of fear. Um, like, you know, what if she posts these, you know, Google reviews and, and then everybody believes these, you know, accusations that, that mm-hmm. she's making about, you know, the, the clinic and everything. Um, so yeah, definitely acknowledging the fear. Um, but then, you know, using the truth of those emotions, um, tapping into the emotional wisdom. Uh, then I felt I could make the best decision going forward, you know, a very emotionally informed decision. Um, A a big concept that I want to, you know, highlight is that it doesn't take long at all to, um, to give a fuck. You know, this concept that like, well... If you give a fuck, you've only got so many fucks to give. And if you give fucks, it's going to take so much time. But it actually takes literally moments to simply list out the emotions and to go through the steps. And once you practice it, it becomes almost automatic. So you can give a fuck and make the best decision in the Mm -hmm. same amount of time and make a better decision because you're using your full emotional intelligence, too. Mm -hmm.
1: So really kind of giving giving a fuck would mean um, not just pushing it aside, but saying, what's going on? here.
0: Mm -hmm. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, you know, just uh, giving a fuck is just basically, you know, filling your emotions, all of them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And not giving a fuck is such, is so bad for your body Mm. to just deny. And I know I'm not telling you anything new, but I just want to speak from, from personal experience. Um, it, it affects you in so many ways. As a psychiatrist, what what is literally happening with our body when we are denying uh, feeling what we're feeling?
0: You know, a whole lot of things can happen. Um, we used to call it, you know, um, somatoform um, and disorder. We, we now call it a somatic symptom disorder. So um, when we suppress and repress emotions enough, it can manifest in all kinds of way, ways such as um, you might end up with you know stomach pain, GI issues. Um, you might have all kinds of uh, physical illnesses pop up, autoimmune stuff. It's um, it, the, it's I imagine the emotions are like uh, little children versions of ourselves, mm-hmm. and if we if we say go away, I don't want you like you have no part in my life, I don't give a fuck about you. They don't just disappear. They they go somewhere. They, they're still there and they, they remain there. And one of their goals seems to be to get our attention. And if we keep ignoring them and trying to avoid them long enough, they might ramp it up and we might have uh, all kinds of, you know, physical illness manifestations or um, panic attacks or, you know, who knows what. It's, it's hard to really study because... There's really no, um, you know, you can't put that in a, a beaker and measure it. It's it's all happening sort of internally. Right. Yeah. Uh, so
1: ultimately, how did you uh, handle the, the Adderall situation? Where did it go from you taking that walk along the, the <laughs> lake, as you described, and
0: kind of uh, examining what was going on inside you? That was when I had the epiphany. You know, a normal thing that I would have done is meditate. And people often use meditation as a way to uh, emotionally bypass. You know, if we can meditate, focus on the breathing, then that's a way that we can get away from the emotions. Mm -hmm. So instead, I incorporated, you know, the emotions and accepting like these painful emotions that I was feeling. And then that helped me to come to resolution about what to do in that case. And so uh, ultimately, what did you do? well, it, it's a bit of a spoiler alert for the book, but okay. it, No, it's it's fine. It, in this case, um I think um in the book I chose to um refer her to a different provider because, you know, she she was only there for the Adderall and and at, at the time that was like the decision that um felt most congruent with mm-hmm. not only the the facts of the situation but also like my emotional integrity. That makes sense. Yeah. Um Talk about the uh the
1: sisters that the is such a compelling um, i don't know story just the the idea that these two sisters were both married to narcissists but different kinds of narcissists. I'm fascinated by the entire thing, so <laughs> talk in as much detail as you can about this
0: so This was a really, um, I I see a lot of patients that are in um, bad relationships. Uh, I only have their word to take for it because I'm only seeing one part of the relationship. But um, in a lot of cases, uh, they're in a relationship where there's definitely some level of uh, emotional abuse going on. Mm Um, and it's such a fascinating topic to dive into because emotional abuse, um, can be very obvious and outright kind of like physical abuse, but it can also be the opposite. It could be very insidious. It could be very covert. So we talk about the overt narcissist with a overt narcissistic abuse, Mm -hmm. pretty easy to spot. Mm -hmm. But then we talk about the covert narcissist Mm -hmm. and how, They're the one that kind of uh, appears to everybody as like the the nice guy, the life Mm -hmm. of the party. Um, Everyone seems to love them. They make a big deal kind of uh, establishing sort of their image to the world, Mm -hmm. you know. But behind the scenes, um, they're like masterminding these passive aggressive uh, emotional abuse tactics that can just really take over somebody's life and destroy them.
1: Talk about some of the ways that the covert Narcissist uh, employs their, uh, I don't know, whatever you would call it, their abuse, the tactics for them to feel whatever it is that they're looking for in their relationships at home with their loved ones, et cetera, the people close to them. Right.
0: And by the way, inspiration for this came from a book called The Covert Passive-Aggressive Narcissist by Debbie Mirza. And that really was the first book that I had ever found that opened up my eyes to um, the different tactics of uh, that type of emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just very uh, interesting to... Um, kind of look back, when, I, when I'm helping a patient that has been in a long-term um, uh, abusive relationship with somebody um, using these tactics, it's like the wool had been pulled over their eyes. And, and for years, they had no idea. And when they finally start to get in touch with their own emotional truth and, and me trying to help them get in touch with their own emotional truth and own emotional wisdom, their own emotional desires is sort of the pathway for them to start to remove the wool and start to see clearly and start to say, hey, th- this, this person, uh, this is wrong. This person shouldn't be doing this. Um, one example uh, is uh, holidays, um, a tactic that sometimes are often used is uh, the, the covert um, abusive person will wait until a special occasion like a birthday or a holiday, and then they'll sabotage it. They'll somehow not show up. Um, they'll make it all about them. Uh, whatever it is to sort of take away the joy from those special occasions. And then, of course, um, they say the passive-aggressive always wins because uh, once the partner gets mad at them, like, why did you ruin Christmas again? It's like... I'm the victim. I didn't mean to. Why are right. you so mad at me? I'm sorry. I'm not perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a, it's sort of a win win tactic until the person finally wakes up and says, you know, no more. Like I'm passive aggression is aggression and I'm not going to take it just like I'm not going to take uh, physical abuse. Uh, a, a red flag for me is always the person who tells you you're hypersensitive.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a, a lot of gaslighting is another tactic Mm -hmm. that they'll use. Um, they'll, they'll be really good at just kind of throwing shit at the wall until something sticks to you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they methodically study it. And once they realize the buttons that they can push, um, then they're going to, you know, tell you that you shouldn't feel how you feel. You shouldn't have the emotions that you have, you know, um, just classic gaslighting techniques. What, uh, let's take somebody like that, What? what's the
1: payoff they're looking for?
0: Um, I do want to give a quick disclaimer because um, although the passive aggressive um, narcissistic behavior is by definition um, emotionally abusive, I don't want to diagnose anybody. The person that's doing it, they may have autism, they may have had an abusive um, family that raised them, they may just not know any better, or they may be diabolically evil. We, we don't know, mm-hmm. so we don't want to diagnose or judge the person. But strictly looking at like their behavior, we can, um, you know, see um, that the payoff might be. That's the only tool they have to stay in a relationship with somebody, and it's pretty damn effective, if you right. think about it. Uh, yeah, I always
1: tr- try to. You know, one of the tools I break out when I start to feel threatened or resentful or angry at somebody as I as I try to go to the place of they're probably afraid that they're not going to get something or they're going to lose something that they have that they feel is essential to their survival or to feel the feelings that they want to feel to be able to get up in the morning and face the day. Um, and it seems like they're usually – uh, based around issues of control or a feeling of safety or, or or acceptance. And it makes it easier to humanize that person. But one of the things that is so frustrating if the person is narcissistic is it's Im- almost impossible for them to take something
0: in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the um, a core feature of someone who actually is narcissistic is that inside they feel so empty and hollow and worthless it's literally too much for them to take and so they're not lying but they really really believe that they are the good one and they see the evil they project the evil and the toxicity onto everybody else around them which explains a lot of their behavior so in a way they they kind of can't help themselves a lot of the time because um, it's such a defense mechanism of just this utter denial. They have to make sense of the world in some way. And mm-hmm. so if it can't be their fault because they're good, it must be your fault. Yeah. Uh, talk about the
1: um, There's a kind of a fascinating uh, story you told about the person who had autism as a child um, and the the steps that their provider took to help them deal with that
0: yeah this um person had a sensitivity to um touch and because of that you know daddy's beard felt like razor blades Mm. and uh he couldn't handle um textures um but they did a process of uh, systematic desensitization therapy and slowly got him used to uh touching different textures and so after that was all done, daddy's beard no longer felt like razor blades. It felt like love mm-hmm. because he was no longer feeling this uh, pain from it. And so that's sort of an analogy of how if we realize that our emotions are not just there to torture us and make us feel like shit for no reason, mm-hmm. then actually they're, they're there to provide a purpose and we can become curious about what they are doing. That's good for us. It's
1: so interesting because I would have assumed that it was just a physical manifestation of, of, uh, it, it was a physical issue that, um, was just objective and there was no subjectivity to it and nothing to do with
0: emotions, just, uh, a physical skin thing. Right. Yeah. And so just like, uh, you know, we use the systematic desensitization towards sort of, um, you can almost think of it as like a, a phobia to touch or just a neurological, like hypersensitivity. Um, but by becoming more and more familiar with getting curious, getting to touch and feel, um, getting to physically expose yourself again and again, um, then we become okay with the environment around us. And so analogously with emotions that can sort of be the pathway that can help.
1: So going back to the, the two sisters that were married to um, narcissists, um, obviously, you deal with helping them explore what eno- emotions they're bearing. How do you help them deal
0: with their interactions with their partners? Mm-hmm. Right. Um it really depends on you know the person, the situation. we always think of safety first, mm-hmm. so if there 's any situation where they might be um, unsafe there 's you know threats, physical harm, that kind of stuff, then we take steps to you know, set them up with extra help um, and then the the magic that I find is that most of my patients are pretty intelligent uh, people, like they practically they know what to do, like they, they know how to stay safe. Um, The problem is, is that psychologically, you know, if they're trauma bonded to somebody, uh, they they're they're so gaslit, they can't see clearly. And so they're just kind of stuck in this um, bad dynamic. So if we can help them to get in touch with their emotions, validate their emotional truth, tune into their emotional wisdom and their desires, then um, they really don't oftentimes need a lot of help from me to say, like, all right, so are you going to get in your your truck and drive to your aunt's or whatever? They'll they'll tell me what they're going to do, you know?
1: Gotcha. Uh, What percentage would you say of people that fall under the spell of the narcissist had their baseline emotional needs met as
0: children? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I, I wouldn't know the percentage. Um, oftentimes, we do see uh, someone that has the narcissistic traits in relationship with somebody who has more of the um, codependent traits. So mm-hmm. the codependent person is going to be the one who is able to or willing to throw their own needs and desires under the bus to mm-hmm. please the other. Uh, the narcissist is going to be you know, willing and able to take all of that from the other person. And so... Uh, they, they tend to complement each other in a pathological way. Uh,
1: one of the things that kind of fascin- fascinates me, I always picture a uh, uh, malignant narcissist as, as somebody who um, had their basic emotional needs uh, ignored as a child. Uh, but sometimes there are narcissists who were put on a pedestal or... or you know, were the, the, the golden child and got everything they wanted and more. Is it, do you find that to be the case ever? Is that
0: rare? It's such an interesting topic to kind of think of the, um, the different causes of the origins. Uh, I spent a couple of years um, training in transference-focused psychotherapy, which is for personality disorders such as narcissism, borderline personality disorder, and uh, with with our professors, you know, we spent lots of uh, lots of sessions talking about these issues. An interesting you know, thing is uh, some argue that, um, well, there is definitely a biological component and some argue if there is a big overlap between high functioning autism or Asperger's uh, with uh, narcissism. And so a lot of it might be the way that they're neurologically wired. You know, the, the mirroring neurons didn't go to the right empathy center in the brain. And so um, they, they can literally lack empathy in some cases.
1: And do you find the influence of cuddling as, as children, does that ever appear as, as something that, that seems to be a um, main cause of narcissism? Or is that just kind of a trope?
0: Yeah um I'm not sure like you know if we could find like the percentages of these things but I think um or examples you know, examples of it I'm, yeah. I I'm just kind of curious to
1: see if that if that pops up in your yeah. in your client base or in your peers talking about it.
0: Mhm. Yeah, um I mean that is definitely, you know, a consideration that that we think about. Um by the time we're we're working with patients, you know, when they're kids, we're we're not thinking, um, you know, narcissistic stuff. We may, maybe take a note of how the parenting's going. Mm-hmm. We're usually seeing more things like the oppositional defiant disorder, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, as as they get older and they start to develop these things, we're sort of interested in what parenting may have been like, but it's oftentimes hard to get a really clear picture of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Have you ever come across somebody who you feel like meets all the criteria of psychopathy?
0: Uh huh. Talk, yeah. talk about that if you would. Well, the the book called "The Sociopath Next Door." Um, I've read it. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's, yeah. That they're among us. They're among us. They're Ten percent of the population, right? Roughly. It's more common than than you would think. Yeah. Um, and, and,
1: and and before you talk about that, yeah. talk about the difference between uh, sociopathy and psychopathy
0: so well in um psychiatry we use the term um for for kids that are like growing up as teens and stuff it's a conduct disorder and then it goes into um anti-social personality disorder once they get old enough um and then uh w- we can, uh, with a psychopathy, we're thinking of like, you know, um, literal psychopaths that are, you know, ending up in prison, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, anti personality disorder, uh, may not be so severe. Um, it, you know, you might see people that are, um, you know, lawyers or CEOs or other, mm-hmm. um, you know, professions where they can kind of, uh, you know, wield power, um, professions that tend to, give people um, a way it, it rewards having a lack of empathy if you're a person that can uh, do things that hurts other people and not have any kind of moral compass about it then you might be attracted to some of these fields
1: yeah she she mentioned in the book that the three fields uh that uh, Psychopaths are most drawn to are law enforcement, politics, and uh, high-level business positions. Right. (laughs) Wow. They are amongst us. I I shared that with a a person one time making small talk on vacation at at kind of a community lunch table. And about five minutes later, uh, I asked the person, so what do you do for a living? And he
0: goes, I'm a police officer. (laughs) It's like, oh, man, I can't get out of here fast enough. Um, so, sometimes they're actually, you know, quite harmless. Um, you know, I've I've known some people who uh, you talk to them and they're like, yeah, absolutely no empathy concern for other people at all. Spend weeks and weeks probing this with them. Nothing there. But they also have no intention of hurting anybody or committing crimes or oh. taking advantage. They just happen to kind of be that way. And they're like, hmm, that's that's weird about me.
1: That's interesting because I, I had always imagined that somebody la- who lacks empathy needs the population to be their chessboard mm. to feel anything. You know, kind of the the Keith Rainiers of the of the world. Have you watched The Vow? Mm-mm. Oh, okay, because I was going to ask you about. It's a it's a pretty fasc- fascinating documentary series about uh, a cult um, mm. and and its a leader. Um, who of course is very charming and all the women fall in love with, even though he's not a particularly objectively attractive man. He holds this Svengali like spell over them. And mm-hmm. to the people who don't buy into his thing, you're thinking, how can anybody buy this guy's shit? But they're so good at identifying what that person's needs are and finding a way to, to draw them in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. So um, getting back to the difference, h- how is a sociopath different than a, a a psychopath?
0: I think those can be used interchangeably. It mm-hmm. just depends on like, um, you know, if you're talking about the DSM-5 in psychiatry yeah. or a psychological scale. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I remember something vaguely in the book where she she said something along the lines that sociopaths tend to be less educated, uh, more on the fringes of society, and um, can occasionally uh, have empathy, but only for those uh, close to them in their in their close circles, and that and that she believes um, that it's not as Commonly genetic, as mm-hmm. psychopathy is. She said that she believes that psychopathy has a large uh, genetic component. Is that is that something you find? To
0: yeah, be and, true. And that's kind of uh, for us. That would be more in the field of um, like forensic psychiatry mm-hmm. when you're working more with like the criminal population. Um, so I, I've uh, done some of those trainings, uh, but that's not really the population that I work with mostly. Yeah.
1: Any. Uh, kind of uh, interactions come to mind when you think back on your time with that population,
0: anything that stuck with you? Uh, one story pops up. Uh, I, you know, um, fictionalized character, uh, in a a land far away, there was a, a teenage boy and, uh, hospitalized, uh, in the, you know, child psychiatry unit and, we went through everything and did all the testing and it was pretty conclusive that there was sort of, a no, no empathy, um, met criteria for conduct disorder, you know, pretty strongly. And I, I had to be the one to break it to his dad and to sit there with his father, look him in the eye and say, you know, your son is likely to you know, grow up to have antisocial personality or be a sociopath. Um, and there's nothing that we can do about it it was it was really hard so we just had to do some psychoeducation about what the situation was and what's the best course because we had to stop this kid from you know killing dogs and everything else he was doing
1: oh my god and so how what kind of guidance do you
0: give uh the the parents it's it's a hard conversation because um you come up against the limits of, you know, practicality. Um, sometimes they will have to involve the police and allow allow the um, child to bump up against, you know, real-life consequences. Uh, sometimes that might be enough to keep them on the straight and narrow. Um, a big problem, of course, is enabling. The well-meaning parent wants to go in and they mm-hmm. want to save the kid from any consequences, but then they just end up getting worse and worse, so... And I would imagine that kid begins then to identify the buttons to push to get
1: what he wants with the parent, much like the untreated addict or alcoholic. Right.
0: Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, share before we wrap up? Um, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just uh, been. You know, really cool to be here and to meet you. I love what you're doing oh, with this podcast. You, thank um, you. That means a lot to me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's special. You know, comedians and mental health are my two passions. So this oh, is uh, wow. this is amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks. And the book is called Give a Fuck, Actually, and it should be out by the, uh, the time this airs. Uh, thanks, Alex. Thank you. Many, many uh, thanks. I hope you enjoyed that. What a nice guy. Really, uh, you know, there's, there's sometimes... I have guests on where it's, uh, and I especially enjoy this when they're mental health professionals. Where it, it, um, <laughs> where I don't feel uh, like I'm talking to like I'm the student talking to a teacher. N- not that I know as much as them, but I feel like they're talking to me as if I'm a peer. And um, in terms of. Uh, <laughs> Not thinking I'm an idiot Being interested in what I have to, to say uh, Because obviously I'm interested in what they have to say But I think a lot of us When we're talking to somebody who is an expert Especially somebody who's gone to school for fucking decades It's so easy to feel intellectually intimidated by people But I, I guess this is all a way of saying What a smart guy who didn't make me feel intimidated How's that? Do I go back and erase this and redo it with the shorter version? No, I plow ahead. I plow ahead. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is such a great uh, question. This is filled out by Anna Banana. Uh, I'm a big fan of your ice cream dessert. I really enjoyed here. That might is that in the running for the dumbest joke ever? Probably not. For my podcast. That's probably not even in the top 100 of the dumbest things I've, dumbest jokes I've made. Uh, what would you like to ask Paul? I really enjoyed hearing the last podcast and realizing that I am not the only one who sometimes cannot always realize what they are feeling and where it stems from. I feel like I am often around people like the person you intervie- interviewed on Bittersweetness. And I believe Susan Kane was the uh, the guest for that author Susan Kane uh, and it would be great to hear a podcast that focused on someone speaking on how they can better learn to identify what they're feeling and how to cope with that I'm so glad you asked that um I did some some searching on the internet because one of the one of the things that uh, I'd done in therapy one time is my therapist had given me a list of um, emotions that human beings feel. And reading that list, I realized how many of them I experienced, but didn't really have the words to say that that's what it was. And this list is way too long to read uh, out loud on the podcast, because there's like God, probably 150 of them, if not more, but they are from the Berkeley Well-Being Institute. So uh, just Google that and you can find them. And this is not a paid advertisement for them, the Berkeley Well-Being Institute, and it's called the Printable List of Emotions. I hope that uh, helps, but great question. I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked that. This is an awful moment filled out by an agender person who refers to themselves as Tony Soprano if he was a lesbian. Um, and their awful moment. I recently stayed in my parents' house for Christmas. That is the beginning of every awful moment. I love my family very much, full stop. And the household is a site of extremely dysfunctional communication patterns. Passive aggression, loud arguments, guilt trips, inappropriate touching from my mom, siblings mostly hiding in their rooms until the parents go off to work, etc. For context, when I was younger and living full-time at home, a therapist told me I was experiencing emotional neglect and intimidation from my father. I argued with her at the time, but looking back, I think that maybe the mental health professional specializing in family dynamics may have been onto to something, lol. Anyway, my visits home usually follow the pattern of me keeping as many emotions in as I can. That's what pie is for. So I don't ruin anyone's holiday until the last few days of my trip when I finally break down and cry in front of someone, causing confusion and conflict in the house. This last trip was no different. After a week of stuffing my emotions, my dad sat me down to ask about my 5- and 10-year horizons when I think I will become a homeowner, if I'm ready to be kicked off the family insurance, if I know how hard he's worked to give me a good life, and how I plan to support myself when he and my mom pass away. Since I am 23 years old, have $43 in my bank account, graduated from art school, if that doesn't tell you enough, am the eldest daughter and feel a deep need not to disappoint him. This conversation broke my emotional seal, and I started crying in front of him. He reacted with confusion and anger, told me that he couldn't understand why I was crying, demanded an explanation, told me I was making him feel bad. When I tried to explain that I didn't want to disappoint him, he left the table as I was mid-sentenced to refill the dog's water bowl. He came back and told me we could talk more when I'd, quote, come to my senses, unquote. I spent the night journaling and trying to find a way to explain what I was feeling. I filled page after page searching for the right words until I landed on a phrasing that filled me with the sense that I could connect us and help him see things from my perspective. The next morning, I made myself some coffee and sat down with Dad, saying I was ready to talk about last night and asking if he'd like to read what I wrote. He nodded, and I opened my journal to the right page. He read for a while, nodded as he did, and I sat there filled with hope. Here it was, the moment I'd been waiting a lifetime for, when my dad would finally understand why I was so, quote, sensitive, unquote, to intense conversations. Give me the reassurance that I so desperately craved from him. Yeah, I think you figured out the problem, he said. I think your mom and I just gave you too much attention and emotional support as a child. wow this is from the love survey filled out by twisted sister and she writes i love walking preferably alone or with a dog it's been my favorite activity since childhood i love the way my pit bull's ears remind me of the little pigtails a girl in my fifth grade class wore i i I know i read them all the time the the loves that involve pets but they are 75 percent of the loves that people fill out, and um, and I love them. And you can go ahead and write me a letter and say, Paul, enough with the pet loves, and I will cast you to hell. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Jules the Fox. She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, She's never been the victim of sexual abuse. She has been emotionally abused. I was constantly gaslit and yelled at during my childhood. If I disagreed, my words would be flipped around to make it sound like I was actually agreeing. At first I got really frustrated, but I learned very quickly to never show any emotion. If I got upset, I was automatically wrong, and sometimes he would laugh. I was never good enough. Even if I did, as I was told, there was always something wrong with the way I did it or that I didn't do it fast enough. When my younger brother came along, my dad literally said more than once, why can't you be more like your brother? To this day, I struggle with expressing any emotion and I can't get angry. The only one I seem to be in tune with is sadness. I can feel that just fine. I constantly feel like I'll never be enough, that I'm just... A burden who will never amount to anything. Any positive experiences with abusers. Yes, later in my life, probably around when I went off to college, my dad did a 180. He is now so caring, generous, and even and even humble. He listens and he's working on acceptance at well. I would love to know what it was that brought about that that change in your dad. And that just, uh, I love reading about when when a relationship gets healed. I just love that because I really do believe that most humans are capable of change. Darkest thoughts. I often think about killing myself. I want to escape all the pain I feel. But more than that. I don't feel like I deserve the life I have and that I am just a burden. I feel like if I were to take my life, everyone else would just find relief. And I hope you know that that is not true. Um, One of the most common things that people say, if you listen to the episode we did with Kevin Briggs, who was a uh, police officer who patrolled the Golden Gate Bridge uh, for years and talked many people off the off the ledge, he said the one thing that everybody who was contemplating suicide said was that they felt like they were a burden. And, uh, it's just not, it's just not true. You know, I think it's so easy to say, oh, I'm not perfect. I have things that I need to work on. Therefore, I'm a burden. No. You know, even if you're a handful, uh, Getting help, working on it, finding people who understand you and are willing to to help you grow um, is much different than you being a, you know, intractable burden. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you? None. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Can't think of anything. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just want peace. Have you shared these things with others? I've only told my therapist. Sometimes, even if I know she's not in her office and won't pick up, I will just call so I can hear her voice on the voicemail. I don't even leave a message. Just reminds me that someone does listen and someone does care. And someone would be sad if I took my life. How do you feel after writing these things down? Alone, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are never alone. Thank you for for sharing that, and I I hope you can get to a place where you can give yourself some of that compassion. This is from the Love Survey, uh, filled out by somebody who calls himself, I got nothing witty today, and uh, they write, I love when my birthday falls on a Friday because it means I get a birthday episode of Mental Illness Happy Hour. I love walking my dog when the leaves start to fall. The contrast between the leaves and her fur is so beautiful, and she's so content that she walks with a strut. It's so perfect that I have to laugh. The joy won't fit into a smile and spills over into a laugh. I do love when dogs are ridiculous. And Gracie, over there on the bed snoozing behind me, ridiculous at least 10 times a day. Ah, uh, this is um from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself away from them. He identifies as straight, he's in his twenties, says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts When I was very young, I remember my older cousin demonstrating sexual acts with various toys we were playing with. encouraging me to show him which acts slash positions i liked with the toys like i mentioned i was very young so my memory isn't the greatest either because of my age or because my brain is trying to protect me but i grew up with a very confused sense of sex and its role in my life this cousin has since been imprisoned for sexual abuse of his two-year-old niece. And this leads me to believe that something more may have taken place rather than just weird toy story, Bugs Life, sexual fan fiction. He has been physically abused. I grew up with a stepfather in the house who wasn't extremely abusive but believed in some serious, quote, discipline, unquote. When my brothers or I would act out, he would spank us or slap us. His favorite threat for when we acted out in public would be if you don't knock this shit off, I'll pull your pants down in front of all these people and beat your ass. He only followed through a few times with this. Also, one year on Christmas, he choked me. I was arguing with my drunk mother, and she shoved me, and I shoved her back. He grabbed me by the neck and slammed me onto the floor. I had purple fingerprints on my neck and told people at school that they were hickeys. Any positive experiences with the abusers? When I was in my early 20s, the stepfather I mentioned above suffered a stroke. We became close afterwards, mainly because he became a completely different person. I still talk to him today and love him dearly. Wow. That's amazing, you know... uh, I've mentioned many times on the podcast. Sometimes these these surveys that I choose randomly for a specific episode have have a theme running through them, and the theme is is abusive parents changing. And um, it, it's sorry as I am for all that stuff that, that um, you experienced as a kid, and it was fucking horrible. Um, the fact that that your dad has has changed what a what a gift that is. Darkest thoughts, I am secretly obsessed with fame. Part of me is convinced that I deserve to be known by the world and that this part of my life is simply my rise to success. Uh, It's led me through some very self-destructive behavior. I dream killing myself. Who doesn't? I've dreamt of suicide by police. Please, please don't. I had to witness that one time. Um... Not to make this all about me, but um, it is a hor- horrifying thing to do to yourself and to other people. But I certainly do not want to shame yourself for feeling the feelings that you that you have and thinking the thoughts that you that you have. Um, and you know, my part, my my thought about the part where you write um, about being obsessed with fame you know the little taste that i had from from being on tv and blah 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 um i realized that it, it was for a long time an insatiable thing because there's a part of the brain that i think is based in the ego that will never be satisfied it once it you know, it it will may, maybe be satisfied for a day, a week, maybe a month, and then it wants more. And one of the things that it does is if you do get some type of adulation is it begins to discount the quality of the people giving you adulation. They don't know. They're not as smart as other people. So you can never win if it's coming from a sick part of your brain. The other thing I discovered is when I had to get help for my problems by going to support groups, that is where I felt seen in a way that wasn't addictive and wasn't based in ego. It was based in a sense of community and feeling humbled by the need to ask for help. And that was most one of the most profoundly changing things in my life, and I could have never, ever predicted it. I thought that my path to safety... And a happy life was by impressing people, and it was just the opposite. It was coming to them and saying, "I I can't live life. I, I I I want to die. I don't know how to do this anymore. Please help me. I'm willing to try anything." And then finally, we have an awfulsome moment, which I I would call this one a happy moment, but it's uh, nah, I wouldn't call that happy. Yes, it's an awfulsome moment because part of it is super fucking dark, but. Uh, This is filled out by a woman who calls herself the unhealed healer. And she writes, many years ago, I was a fairly new therapist at the time. And I had a client who was a child murdered by their parent, who I had also worked with in sessions. To say I was a fucking mess was an understatement. I was in a session with my own therapist and I was just really struggling. I had essentially melted into the couch, just weeping, not able to speak. Not really moving, just crying and crying. At one point, I finally looked at her and said, how am I going to get through this? I don't think I ever will. When she opened her mouth to speak, her chewing gum shot straight out of her mouth, flew across the coffee table, and bounced perfectly off my knee onto the floor. Her hands flew over her mouth, and she just stared at me in horror. I looked down at the gum on the ground, surrounded by all of my snot covered tissues, and I started to laugh for the first time in several weeks. She also began to laugh, and the two of us just cackled for the rest of the session. I swear, having her to have accidentally spit her gum at me was more healing than anything else that could have been said in that moment. If you could condense what I hope this podcast to be into a single survey, that is it that is it well I hope you guys got something out of this episode and if you're uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck uh, just never never forget that you are not alone and thanks for listening
2: everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful everybody up up I know weird is bizarrely beautifully fucked up, in some, bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. bizarrely beautifully up in some weird way.